uh, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 48. Um, It is our practice to stand when we read God's Word together. And I do intend to read all 22 verses. Uh, So uh, if you are willing and able, uh, then please stand as we read God's Word together. Uh, After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took him... Uh, He took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, your son, Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of people and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan the way on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I, have, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, and uh, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I I know. He also shall become a people and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, by you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God, make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus, he put Ephraim before Manasseh. And then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you 
rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. The grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we pray uh, that you would speak uh, through this, your holy word, that it truly would be food to us, and that you would take your truth and plant it deep in us and fashion us after the image of Christ, that by your grace we might stand on your promises and by faith we might walk as you walk with us. Through Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, as uh, most of you know, maybe all of you by now know, uh, Senator John McCain passed away, uh, I guess it was yesterday morning, was it yesterday, Friday, um, yesterday. Um, he's had a brain tumor, he's, he's known this day was coming, this has been um, not foreign to him by any stretch for many months now. In fact, according to at least one news outlet, he's actually been planning his uh, funeral service for several months, knowing who uh, he wants to invite and who he wants to uninvite and knowing who he would like to speak um, and all of those sorts of things. Have you ever given thought to that day? I mean, like, I, you know, there's a part of me that thinks, okay, he's had, I mean, he's known for some time this day was coming. Surely he's given thought to what would he say when, in, when his family is gathered around him and he knows the end is near. Have you ever thought about what if I were laying in a hospital bed somewhere? What if I were at home um, knowing that my days are short and my family's gathered around me, my kids, my grandkids, maybe great grandkids, who knows, all gathered around me? Have you given thought to what you would say in those moments? Because Jacob is ill. Jacob's days are few as chapter 48 begins. Uh, Jacob has not many more days left on this earth. And, and he's had 17 years in Egypt with Joseph. R remember, we, we pointed out last before coming to Egypt, he spent the last 25 years talking about his death like it's tomorrow, like I'm, I'm, it's, you know, it's coming right around the corner, all of those sorts of things. And then, then he moves to Egypt and has another 17 years in Egypt with Joseph, under Joseph's care. And now his days are few. And so Joseph grabs his sons and, and they go and visit uh, father, grandfather Jacob. Don't miss that. See, in your minds, you're thinking, well, they better have. I mean, his days are few. You better go visit your dad, your grandfather, when he's... But it's more than that. Joseph's sons are half Egyptian, half Hebrew. And the Hebrew half is the shepherd half that has that part of Egypt that no self-respecting Egyptian ever cares to live in. They just identified. Now, these are boys that probably in their early 20s by now. They were born before Jacob came. He's been there 17 years. They're in their early 20s. They've walked Pharaoh's courts. 
their friends are, you know, the other sort of vice presidents and cabinet members of Pharaoh's uh, cabinet. The Secretary of Defense for Egypt is, you know, their son is some of their best friends. I don't know what they had then, but you, you get the picture. They live and move in those circles, in among those people. And Joseph and his sons have said, we're identifying with God's people. Not with the wealth and the opulence and the social pressure and the favor that we have here in Egypt. We're identifying with God's people. Yes, they may be shepherds. Yes, the culture around them might disdain them. They might even lose friends over this. But they're choosing instead to be marked as among God's people. They're choosing to be identified as those who belong where God's people belong. How tempted are we, perhaps, from time to time to make little of church attendance, to make little of church membership, to make little of our faith in Christ, to make little of that religion we profess because it just might cost us something. This, no telling what this is costing Ephraim and Manasseh in terms of friendships, in terms of, of favor in Pharaoh's court. They're not afraid to identify as belonging to God's people. Never shy away from identifying with God's people. And at the news that Joseph is there, at the news that Joseph has come, ah, the iPad, uh, at the news that, don't you love the handoff? Thank you, Apple, for this great technology. Um, at the news that Joseph has come, jo Jacob musters his strength. Jacob gathers the energy and strength that he has, and he sits up in bed. You can tell he's weak and feeble. And welcomes Joseph and his sons into his presence. And notice, uh, we, I haven't read, I don't know what John McCain said the last week or so with his family. We have Jacob's words. Jacob's got Joseph and his, his grandsons Ephraim and Manasseh there in his room. And we know exactly what, is, what does Jacob focus on? What, what does Jacob choose to say to Joseph and these two grandsons. Well, first, he recounts God's blessings. In verses 3 and 4, Jacob reaches way back to Luz, or Bethel, we've called it up till now. It's had both names uh, off and on. Uh, one name sort of fades into history and another one takes uh, its place. Perhaps you recall as, as Jacob was running away from his brother Esau and running to his mother's family to go find a wife. There he uh, sleeps and has this vision of a staircase with angels ascending and descending. And there God met him back in Genesis 28. And God promised to give to Jacob that land. He promised Jacob people, place, and His presence. He promised, I'll be with you wherever you go, and I'm going to make of you a great nation, and, and a multitude of nations of people are going to come from you. 
and this land will be yours as an everlasting promise, as an everlasting residence for you and for your descendants. And so here, on his deathbed, Jacob recounts God's blessings to Joseph. And notice even the the language that he uses in verse 4. Notice he, he cites, he recognizes that the work will be God's. Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply. I will make you a company of peoples. I will give you this land. The honor, the credit, the glory all belongs to God. Jacob takes none of it for himself. This is the promise that God made to, be, to me decades ago at Bethel. But then... Jacob has another encounter with God at Bethel. On his way back into the promised land, he's leaving uh, Laban. He's now married Rachel and Leah and and uh, the two servant women. And he's on his way back into the promised land. And he's about to face brother Esau again for the first time in decades. And there wrestled with God at Bethel back in Genesis 35. And you remember, he grabbed on as he wrestled with God. He wrestles with, with, with God and grabs on and says, I'm not letting go until you bless me. And there he received his limp as God touched his hip. And there in that moment, after wrestling with God, God reiterated the same promises all over again. I'm going to give you my presence. I'm going to give you this place. And I'm going to give you people. You'll have all of them. They're all promised from God. Parents, when you gather your children around you, grandparents, when, you, when you've got your children and grandchildren and maybe great-grandchildren around you, maybe rather than talking about the fact that the house needs to be cleaned, maybe rather than talking about aches and pains, maybe instead we recount... God's promises. We recount God's word. We recount God's blessings to us over the years. Jacob, Jacob could complain, right? I mean, couldn't Jacob complain at this point? I mean, he could go. You know, it's been it's been decades. I mean, he said he was going to give me this land. I'm in Egypt. He promised me Canaan. I'm in Egypt. And not only am I in Egypt, but I'm about to die in Egypt. Clearly, God hasn't fulfilled His promise. See, Jacob could complain. He said He was going to give it to me. I'm going to give you this land. And I'm in Egypt. These people don't like me. I'm not in Canaan. They don't like shepherds. They don't like what we do. This is not, this isn't what God said. This is not what God promised. He could complain. I've got these aches. I've been walking with this limp for however many years now because of wrestling with God back when He made me those promises that He still hadn't fulfilled yet. Right? He, he could complain. He could, he could moan and groan about all of the same things. I, I, he said a multitude of nations, I've got 12 sons. 70 descendants there in Egypt. Direct descendants. Now that doesn't count. His sons' wives, that doesn't count. Foreigners, I mean, just 70 direct descendants. 
That's not exactly a multitude of nations. That's not exactly a great number. Technically, it is multiply and fruitful. Um, Jacob has, well, four wives. Seventy is a lot more than four. So technically, to satisfy you math engineering people, yes, technically that is multiplication. But by no one's standard, does that count as, as multitude of nations? No, does, does, by no one's standard, does 70 count as a nation for that matter? He could complain. God promised him presence, place, and people, and he's only guarantee he's fulfilled his presence. He even admits as much. God has been with me and walked with me just as he had with my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. He's given me a place. Well, I've got a burial plot. Uh, Maybe the size of this room. Maybe not. He's promised me this land and I'm not there. I'm in Egypt. And yet he gives all this credit and glory to God. All the verbs in verse 4, God will, God will, God will. He recognizes it's not up to him, but he also recognizes that God has made a promise. Therefore, he will, even if his eyes don't yet see it. That's his hope. That's his trust. Jacob's eyes, we're told in verse 10, are dim with age. He doesn't see well. In fact, he has to kind of say, Joseph, who are these boys with you? Well, this is, these are my sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. His eyes are growing weak. His eyes are growing dim. He doesn't see well. But this passage shows us something. He doesn't need them. He doesn't need them to see what God is going to do. Because his eyes tell him God has failed. But Jacob doesn't see with his eyes. Because he still recounts God's blessings and God's promises. And he says, look, God has promised I will do this. Therefore, Joseph, he will. My eyes haven't seen it yet. I haven't gotten the full experience of it yet. That doesn't make his promises null and void. Jacob recounts God's promises and blessings. Second, Jacob adopts Joseph's sons. In verses 5 to 7, Ephraim and Manasseh, verse 5, will be Jacob's. And and look at the comparison he makes in verse 5. They're mine. They shall be mine the same way Reuben and Simeon are. Now, do you remember the order? Can you recount the 12 tribes? Can you recount the 12 sons in order? Reuben and Simeon are first. In other words, grandsons through son number 11 just got promoted to sons 1 and 2. They leapfrogged their father Although through them, their father gets a double blessing. And then jumped 
10, 9, 8, 7, all the way up. And they became sons 1 and 2. Jacob adopts uh, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh to be his sons. And they take the place of Reuben and Simeon. In fact, let me show you this. In 1 Chronicles chapter 5, turn there if you like, but I'm going to read one verse. 1 Chronicles chapter 5. And this is centuries and centuries and centuries later. Well at the end of... This is millennia later. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. 1 Chronicles 5 verse 1. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. For he was the firstborn, but... Because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Do you see it? The writer of Chronicles, Israel history, this is millennia later, recognizes that this adoption was firm and it took and it was official and Ephraim and Manasseh become sons one and two. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, A, how is that possible? That just seems like totally unfair. B, what's with the mention of Rachel? Like Rachel seems in verse seven, that seems to be out of place. Here's the connection. Rachel, you recall, was his favorite wife. Rachel, you recall, is the one he thought he would marry first. He worked seven years to get Rachel as, a, as his wife. And do you remember what it says the night before their wedding? Those seven years seemed like minutes because of his great love for Rachel. Rachel's father, Rachel's older sister Leah, conspired against them. And he wakes up the next morning and he's married to Leah. In other words, Rachel should have had first place. Rachel was the wife, his favorite wife. Rachel was the one he loved. Rachel was the one he should have married first. Joseph then would have been the firstborn son. He's basically granting to Ephraim and Manasseh what in his mind, ought to have been all along. And he's honoring Rachel with double honor. Rather than giving Joseph the blessing, which would be one-twelfth of the land, Joseph actually gets more than that. Instead of Joseph getting a name, his two sons do. And so they get a double portion, a double honor. And so he honors both Joseph and his first love, Rachel, with this double portion by adopting Ephraim and Manasseh to be his own sons. So Jacob, in his last days, last minutes with Joseph and his two sons, first Jacob recounts God's blessings. Second, he adopts Joseph's sons. And then third, Jacob pronounces those same blessings on his newly adopted sons. And that's the whole rest of the chapter, verses 8 to 22. He looks and sees figures there who are these. And Joseph says, these are my sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. 
Now you recall, Joseph is an administrator. Now, Joseph is an organizer. Joseph had been the, I don't know, the Pharaoh's secretary of food collection and administration agency. That, he had overseen that department in Egypt. He had made sure to gather food during the seven great years and then be able to distribute food during the seven lean years. He's, he's an organizer. He's an administrator. Uh, some of you, um, you know the experience of sitting across the table from someone and you look at them and they've got food on their cheek. And you kind of try to nonchalantly give them this right here. You just this little, it's a universal symbol for you've got something on your face. You give just a quick little wipe on your right cheek. Then they're stuck with a dilemma, right? They typically will reach up with their left hand and wipe their left cheek. Because it's on the same side of their body as the hand that you just gave them. Right? And then you go, no, no, no. The other side, right? I was wiping my right cheek. You should wipe your right cheek. This mirror game causes us trouble all the time. Joseph recognizes that trouble. So he takes Manasseh, firstborn, puts him at his left hand and gives him a shove in the back towards his father so that Jacob is now facing Manasseh and Manasseh is going to be on his right side. So when he sticks his hands out to bless his... In other words, Joseph organizes for Jacob. That's what he's been doing. He's an organizer. He's an administrator. That's how he thinks. That's what he's been doing for the last who knows how many years in Egypt now. And so he does it one more time. And he sets Manasseh up so that that will be on Manasseh will be on Jacob's right hand. And Ephraim will be on his left hand because Ephraim's the younger. And the right hand is the stronger blessing that, that goes to the older. That's the rule. That's the custom. That's the standard. And so he sets it up for his father. To make sure that the older gets their correct blessing. Jacob messes Joseph's plan up. He sticks his hands out and crosses his hands. And you can hear you some of you, some of you with that administrative organizing mind, you're in Joseph's head already, right? Dad, you know me. I set this up for you. Don't double think me. Right? I mean, just trust me. I put this the way it's supposed to be. He's convinced that Jacob just can't see. His eyes are dim. His mind must be going too. And he's just assumed that, okay, Joseph's right. I mean, he assumes it's purely a, Wait, which kid is which? I can't see with my eyes. Joseph assumes that that's Jacob's problem. In fact, he's displeased, verse 17. We're told, and the language there is actually borderline disrespectfully forceful. He grabs his father's wrist. Dad, you're wrong. It's this way. And he tries to fix it. And I love verse 19. I know, my son. I know. Jacob, Joseph, this isn't a problem with my eyes. I'm not crossing my hands because, as you think, I can't see. He would remember this, by the way. 
The last time a father blessed a son in Genesis? It was Jacob being blessed by blind Isaac. Because Jacob had tricked him into thinking he was Esau. Into thinking he was the oldest. Into thinking he was the the firstborn and therefore receiving the blessing by right. And Jacob saying, Joseph, this isn't that problem. This isn't an eyeball problem. This isn't a problem with my eyes not being able to tell which is Ephraim and which is Manasseh. This actually, Joseph, is a problem with your eyes. But not the eyes in your head. Because notice the language of the blessing that he gives to these sons. You know, we read just a few minutes ago, by the way, we read Hebrews 11. We read the first three verses of Hebrews 11. And then we read verse 21. Verse 21 is the only time in that great hall of faith that Jacob is mentioned. And he's mentioned for this very act right here. He's mentioned in Hebrews 11 for crossing his arms and blessing Joseph's son. In other words, it's an act of faith. Faith is assurance of things hoped for. It's the convictions of things that these eyeballs in our heads can't see. Jacob's acting in faith. And he blesses, he stretches out his hands and he blesses these boys, verses 15 and 16, and then again down in verse 20. And notice the language of the blessing. God has been with me and my fathers. It's a reference to presence. <clears throat> Grow them into a multitude in the midst of the earth. It's a, 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 and he's invoking the blessing of people. And later we'll see in verse 22, there's actually a blessing of, of place. The laws of the land, the, the customs of the people, both in Egypt and in Canaan and in surrounding countries, all say blessing goes to the oldest. The greater blessing goes to the oldest, not to the youngest. But Jacob's the youngest. Technically, Isaac was the younger son of Abraham. Think of all the times in Scripture God uses the unlikely, the countercultural, the this is against the customs of the day. David was by no means the oldest and was instead the youngest. Moses was chosen, not Aaron. Seth, not Cain or Abel. It's a pattern. It's a pattern throughout God's history, how frequently He takes the things that are, that are counter to earthly human culture that to you and me would go, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. And He would use those instead. Use those people. Use those means to accomplish His purposes. God's grace isn't bound by earthly human custom. God's grace is not bound by the laws you think 
And I think it should be bound. We don't take our earthly sort of cultural customary practices and say, well, now God's grace has to work within this nice little box. This drives engineers crazy. There's not a formula. There's not a pattern. It's frequently the unlikely. Perhaps even what you and I might call the unacceptable. God's grace rarely operates according to our expectations and our customs. Of course, there's, a, there's an implication there, right? And it's simply that that means nobody is beyond God's grace. Those people that you think are too far gone, those people that you think are too bad, they're not unreachable by God's grace. Perhaps you're even thinking, but I'm too bad. I'm too far gone. I'm unworthy. I don't fit the formula for, well, this is how God should work in the church. I don't meet those criteria perfect. That means you're in a place to trust not in yourself, but in God's grace. For the unworthy, the unlikely. And he pronounces this blessing on the greater blessing on the younger rather than on the older. Let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. You should this afternoon go take a look at Numbers chapter 1. You're going, wait, number? you mean to read Numbers really? You should go look at Numbers 1 and compare the, the descendants of these tribes, of these clans, as they have left Egypt and are now heading to the promised land, Ephraim and Manasseh together, there are more than 72,000 men qualified to fight in the army. They've grown. They've become a multitude. They're growing amazingly. And even after Joseph objects, Jacob says that Manasseh, yes, he's going to be a people, but Ephraim is going to be the greater people. Manasseh is going to be a people, but Ephraim will be become a multitude of nations, verse 19. In fact, so great is Ephraim that in books like Hosea, Hosea uses Ephraim to mean the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel. So great has Joseph's younger son become, having now received the blessing of the firstborn of his father Jacob, that actually his name represents all of the northern kingdom. And then in verse 22, Jacob does something absolutely extraordinary. Moreover, Joseph, I've given to you, to these sons, uh, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope. And the, the, the language there, the, um, the Hebrew there, it could be Shechem. It could be a mountain slope in Shechem, but it's sort of connected to Shechem somehow. Exactly where that is doesn't matter so much as what Jacob is doing. Jacob just gave an inheritance of land that he doesn't even own. Don't miss this. Jacob just gave land to his newly adopted sons that doesn't 
belong to him. I left out a key word. Yet. Because in Jacob's mind, God has promised that land, it's mine. I don't own the deed yet. I don't have the title yet. I don't, I don't, my name's not on the, the deed. I'm not registered at any courthouse yet. God's promised it. It, it will be one day. He's, he's acting in such great faith that He's actually bequeathing land to His newly adopted sons that He doesn't even yet have the right to give away. One day, Joseph, when you get to the land, when Ephraim and Manasseh get to the land, when their descendants and their descendants' descendants take the land, they get this piece of property. It's for them. I'm I'm giving it to them. How can Jacob possibly give away land he doesn't own? It's simple, really. He doesn't need the eyes in his head. They've grown dim with age, but that's really okay. He's not using them anymore. He's not seeing with the eyeballs, the physical eyeballs in his head. He's seeing with his heart. He's trusting God's Word. He's trusting God's promises and is acting instead on the the certainty of those promises. He's embraced those promises in faith even though His eyes tell tell Him, I'm not so sure. You see our struggle? When we try to use our eyeballs to determine God's Truthfulness when we try to use our eyeballs to, to tell God where He's messed up and where He's gotten things right, we miss it. He calls us to see with our hearts, to live and walk by faith, not by sight. Let me make just two applications from this passage. First, if, you've, if you're here this morning, you've never trusted in Christ for your salvation. There, there could be any number of reasons for that. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, I'm just too far gone. I'm just too bad. Let me, I've got to get a couple of things cleaned up first. And then I'll fit the mold, the, the, the custom, the pattern of those kinds of people who receive God's grace. You're missing the point. If you deserve it, It isn't grace. Run to Christ. Because He doesn't take the cleaned up and and make them better. He takes the filthy, the unworthy, and cleans us up. And and embraces us and grants us new life. This passage says, We don't get to put God's grace in a box and say it must work like this. It must follow these human patterns. Instead, run to Christ. It is sufficient regardless of your standing, your your position in any culturally created customs. A second application. When was the last time you did something that your neighbor's thought outlandishly foolish? When was the last time 
that you did something and perhaps your kids or your parents or your neighbors or your fellow church members thought, that's just crazy. Like that's just, that's nuts. Because you're acting in faith, because you're trusting God's promises, you're trusting God's word. And it's one thing to say we trust Christ and we believe the Bible, but if it never affects our decision making, if it never affects the plans we make, if it never affects how we spend our money, how we spend our time, um, if it never affects any of the things that we do, then do we really trust the Bible? Part of Jacob's model here is he trusts God's Word and therefore passes on blessing and gives away land that is not yet his to give away. God's Word is that sure and true to him. Is God's Word that sure and true to you? Oh, that we might live by faith and, and in that sense not really need the eyes in our heads. Oh, that we might trust in God's Word, trust in His promises, even when our eyes can't see His hands at work all that clearly. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your promises that are sure and true and yea and amen in Christ. We thank you for your word that you've made yourself known to us. You've revealed to us your will for our salvation and how we might live to honor and glorify you in this world. But Father, we pray that you would so grow our faith that we might live and walk by faith and not by sight. That we might trust in the certainty, the promises made to us in Scripture, rather than when our eyes tell us we think God just messed up. We're not sure God's at work. Grant us the grace to live by faith. Through Christ we pray. Amen.